Hi everyone, Matt here from The Familiar Strange. We hope you've been having a wrestle break, and as a bit of a bonus for the holiday season, we'd like to present this special roundtable episode recorded at 2019's AAS conference, held at the Australian National University. This roundtable was called Theory as Reproduction, Reflections on the History of Doing Feminist Anthropology in Australia. A big thank you to Dr. Ben Hegarty, Dr. Carly Schuster, and Dr. Shiori Shakuto for reaching out and making this collaboration possible. So please enjoy part one of this two-part roundtable discussion. Hi, my name is Benjamin Hegarty. I'm a McKenzie postdoctoral fellow at the University of Melbourne. I'd like to acknowledge that I am speaking from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and to pay my respects to their elders past and present. Great, I'm uh, Caroline Carly Schuster, uh, a senior lecturer at the Australian National University in the School of Archaeology and Anthropology. I'm also a member of the Gender Institute and on their management committee uh, at the NU. And I would like to acknowledge that I'm uh, speaking the land of the Ninawal and Nambri people, and I pay my respects to the, their elders past and present. And I am Shiori Shakuto, and I am an assistant professor at the University of Tokyo Institute for Advanced Studies, Tokyo College, very long name. And today I'm participating from Tokyo. Hi, Shiori. Hi, Carly. How are you? Hello, Ben. So today we're here to talk about the Feminist Anthropology Roundtable that we held at the Australian Anthropological Society Conference in 2019, held at the Australian National University in Canberra. So in this panel, we brought together a group of influential feminist anthropologists who have worked uh, in Australian university settings since the 1970s. Um, I think for me, what I, I, I kind of both motivated the panel um, and kind of remained kind of a really interesting aspect of it was the close relationship and intimacy between this group of women, um, obviously developed over the course of many decades of scholarship and research together, and really spoke, I think, to some of the reasons why we put this panel together in the first place. Um, Carly, did you? Did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, well, I, we should emphasize that the title for our roundtable was Theory as Reproduction, Reflections on the History of Doing Feminist Anthropology in Australia. And one of the reasons we titled uh, the panel such was that this question of reproduction was kind of core to the relationship and the solidarities among this group of scholars, um, kind of women, mothers. There was kind of a lot of stories about kind of minding one another's children and sort of being pregnant at uh, kind of various workshops that were really influential. And in that sense, like really kind of growing up together as people, as scholars, as thinkers, and as theorists. And we wanted to capture a snapshot of that in the panel. So I guess that we should kind of emphasize that 
the uh, kind of tone of the panel, panel is often quite sort of chatty and intimate, and uh, is a wonderful sort of invitation into uh, this really long-standing, ongoing kind of conversation. And we really, uh, as um, kind of junior scholars coming up in a feminist tradition in Australia, I remember that our own kind of experience of this came about kind of sitting around a table at a seminar room, um, doing a kind of works in progress uh, reading group and realizing that um, the uh, sort of readings and thinking that particularly Kathy Robinson and Margaret Jolly had been kind of doing around feminist anthropology around Marxism in the 1970s, like very different from the conversation that had evolved and emerged out of say, um, kind of American feminism and feminist theory even though that was taken as the kind of unmarked dominant norm for kind of how we tell the history of kind of feminist theory and feminist thought. So what was really cool about this project for me was to kind of bring together that unique trajectory of feminist thought and feminist history kind of here in Australia with the kind of feminist principle of sort of speaking from experience and um, the kind of collectivity and cohesion that kind of interpersonally brought these women together to do that, to kind of put it into practice. So the two couldn't be separated. And what emerged from this panel was exactly that, the fusion uh, in a really kind of cool dynamic way of uh, a kind of personal oral history of feminist political anthropology in Australia, um, along with uh, those kind of personal life histories from which those theoretical questions emerge. Yeah. And we have Shiori here as well. Um, so if you want to say some um, kind of thoughts about what you um, kind of took from this panel. Yeah. Hi, Shiori. So I, well, it's really exciting. It was really exciting to be part of this panel. I think um, I was personally very interested in the history of feminist anthropology in Australia because I can attest from my own personal experience that I was made a feminist in Australia. So I was trained to be a feminist anthropologist here. Cool. And then um, having graduated, then moving to uh, different positions in Singapore and then to Japan, I realized that, wow, there is actually so many different ways of doing feminist anthropology in different parts of the world. So then that got me really interested in a, in a very distinct history of feminist anthropology in Australia. And that was really exciting to hear um, perspectives and experiences from the field, um, from these excellent um, anthropologists that really inspired me when I was a postgraduate student and continue to inspire me now. That was my personal motivations to be part of this panel. Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, that's really cool. I think that it's those kind of that intimate relationship between kind of these personal experiences forged both within institutions, but also, you know, within as anthropologists in, in, in field sites that makes both, you know, our own relationship to the panel, but also each of the, the panelists kind of uh, papers really inspiring, you know, the fact that they traverse all kinds of spaces from and context from like mowing one another's lawn in O'Connor in Canberra to um, to field sites in in Borneo to um, to kind of university or um, uh, second wave feminist um, groups at the University of Sydney. I think what's what's fascinating to me is is how productive anthropological knowledge is, um, particularly in in that respect, that kind of movement between 
of a theoretical, personal field site institution. And we should note for listeners at home, uh, as you're engaging with this panel, that because many of these scholars are you know, speaking from experience and also kind of speaking to one another about their experiences and sharing experiences that uh, in many cases they've sort of talked through in their own writing, but also with one another um, for kind of many years, uh, that the content of some of the uh, discussions can touch on some uh, difficult and challenging subjects, including um, the, some questions around um, family violence, uh, around sexual assault, and uh, around sexual harassment in the workplace. And that uh, the tone is meant to be kind of in conversation with, on one hand, what was happening in that particular moment in 2019 um, around the Me Too movement and the sort of global outrage um, that sort of came from the institutional kind of violence against women, uh, particularly in universities, but also uh, kind of within wider institutions. Um, but also that this is part of a kind of much longer um what trajectory of scholarship that's sort of drawing out those experiences uh both in wider publications and these wider conversations so um a bit of a sort of note about what will be covered uh in this um this set of recordings that's brilliant thank you so much carly thank you shiori and um thanks for putting together an amazing or curating an amazing roundtable thanks ben and now let's have a listen First speaker is Professor Christine Hallowell. Christine is a professor emeritus of anthropology at the ANU. Her research specializes in the cross-cultural constitution of gender and sex through the study of Dayak people of Borneo. Her field defining article, among many, it's only a penis, rape, feminism, and difference has shaped the field of feminist anthropology. We look very much forward to hearing from you. So the three of you asked us to actually tell this in terms of telling stories, so I should just say that as a, as a kind of preface. So I've got two stories that I'm going to tell here today, um, and these stories both relate to my time as a PhD student here at ANU in the early 1980s. And the two stories speak to one another quite closely, as I think you'll see. Okay, so my first story is from my period as a pre-fieldwork pre uh, pre PhD student here at ANU. After I'd been in Canberra to begin my PhD for less than a week, I made a morning tea visit to the departmental tea room. My head of department, an extremely large, extremely overbearing man, who many of you here will know, um, who regarded me with great suspicion because he knew I had an interest in gender, was seated in his customary place in front of the window. When he saw me enter the room, he announced loudly to everyone present that he wasn't comfortable with the idea of me doing fieldwork in Borneo, and this was actually the reason I'd come to ANU, was to do fieldwork in Borneo. I can still hear the words uttered in his very distinctive voice, and I quote, I'm not happy with the idea of a lone woman floating round the jungles of Borneo. <laughs> there are many elements of the statement that we might unpack, and I'm just going to make two points about the statement here. The first point is that the classic Eurocentric image of Borneo was being invoked ironically in this anthropology tea room. The Borneo of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness with its deep dark jungles teeming with all kinds of unimaginable perils. Not least of these dark perils was the indigenous peoples I planned to do my fieldwork with, the Dayaks. Dayaks, of course, occupied for a long time a special place within the European imaginary for their voracious headhunting. 
So at one level, headhunting was being referenced here in the suggestion that Borneo was a dangerous place for a lone woman. No matter that by the 1980s, Dayaks hadn't in fact headhunted for a long, long time. And no matter that, in any case, they almost never bothered with, with European heads. And no matter, too, that headhunting, when practiced, had in fact been entirely gender neutral in its choice of victims. So a lone woman was in no more danger from it than a lone man. This brings me to my second point, and that is that none of these things mattered because while this statement undoubtedly invoked the European stereotype of the violent diet headhunter, it was in fact actually not about headhunting per se. And no one in that tea room on that day read it as being so. Rather, the statement was about a form of violence which targeted mostly women. It was about sexual violence, about the possibility of rape for that lone woman in the jungle. And that was how everyone present at the time read it. How easy it was to slide from the image of jungle-dwelling headhunters to an image of men who routinely rape. It struck me at the time that there was a deeply racist iconography at work here, but I was too unsure of myself at the time to say so. And that's my first story. <clears throat> and the second story relates to the actual period of my PhD fieldwork itself, two years later. And this is a story that I've written at length about elsewhere, and I hope people won't mind me repeating it here. I was around three to four months into my fieldwork in inland Borneo, living alone in an apartment in a Dayak longhouse when the events in the second story took place. I woke up one morning to a din on the longhouse veranda outside my apartment. A group of elderly women were recounting with much hilarity an event that had occurred the previous night. A man from the community had climbed through the window of a nearby house where a widow lived and had attempted to climb inside her mosquito net while she slept. He was whispering to her, be quiet, be quiet. The widow sat up and pushed him violently so that he stumbled backwards and got tangled up in her mosquito net. He finally escaped in some disarray out the window with the woman shouting abuse at him as he went. Now the elderly women outside my longhouse apartment were telling the story with great and raucous enjoyment. Mimicking the man climbing out the window, his clothes disordered, his genitals askew. <laughs> but I was appalled by the story, and also by the light-heartedness of their response. I knew what this was called, it was attempted rape. And I knew what needed to be done, the man needed to be punished heavily. But when I attempted to put this view to the group of old women, they simply laughed harder. Later the same day, the widow herself came up onto the longhouse veranda to vent in public her anger over what had happened. Feeling vindicated, I took the opportunity to question her. Had she been frightened, I asked. Of course she had, and she'd been angry too, she said. Why then, I asked, attempting to establish some kind of feminist sisterhood, had she not taken the opportunity to kick the man or to whack him with one of the wooden rice pounders? They have the enormous kind of hardwood wooden rice pounders. So why hadn't she tried to hit him with one of these wooden rice pounders, which was nearby? She looked shocked. Why would she want to do such a thing, she asked. I, I struggled to explain myself in my completely inadequate local language. He was trying to have sex with you, I said, although you didn't want to. He was trying to hurt you. I'll never forget the look on the widow's face as she took this in. There was incomprehension there and shock, but there was also a deep pity and concern in her eyes. Oh, Tim, Christine, just Christine, she said, it's only a penis. How can a penis hurt anyone? How indeed can a, how indeed can a penis hurt anyone? 
That simple question. How indeed can a penis hurt anyone? That simple question was transformative for me in my journey as both an anthropologist and a feminist scholar. I went on to teach both gender studies and anthropology in Australian universities. It opened up the window onto the onto the bag of cultural assumptions about gender and sex that I had carried with me to the field as easily as I'd carried my mosquito net in my notebooks. These assumptions included that gender was ultimately rooted in bodies and specifically in genitalia, that men and women were profoundly different, indeed opposed kinds of beings with different kinds of agency, and so on. <clears throat> and this question also produced the astounding realisation that rape was not a cultural universal, as most feminists at the time assumed that it was. In fact, there was no such thing in the, as rape in the society in which I was working. It was quite simply unthinkable. The man had gone to the widow's house seeking nothing more than consensual sex. Be quiet, it turned out, as a euphemism for sexual relationships in this community, as I later discovered. The widow had rejected him because she believed that the proper process of initiatory gift-giving that he had to follow had not in fact been properly concluded. This event also made me realise in a way that I hadn't quite realised before that my own society was a deeply violent one. It made me reflect a lot on my own society and that I carried within me everywhere I went the fear of sexual violence from men, gained as Judith Butler puts it so beautifully as part of the process of being girl in my society. In my Dyak longhouse I lived in an apartment whose door could not be secured at night. This was a place without locks or bolts. And although I never really acknowledged it at the time, I look back now and realise that this left me feeling deeply vulnerable. But also looking back now, I also realise that I had no need to feel vulnerable. Not only because this was a community in which rape was simply unthinkable, but also because although it seemed to me as a Westerner that I was alone in my apartment, in fact, I was never alone. I was embedded in an ever vigilant community of neighbours who always knew exactly where I was, who else was with me, and exactly what I was doing. I realised too, looking back, that the locals had almost certainly been charged by the local Indonesian police chief with making sure that I came to no harm. And people were very frightened of the local Indonesian police representative, so they certainly would have done what he told them to do. Miranda Tapsell recently commented in a wonderful comedy routine that some of you may have seen, that one of the first rules she had to learn as an Australian Indigenous comedian was to, quote, never make white ladies cry. <laughs> I suspect that something of this rule also applied in Borneo in the mid-1980s. My head of department need have had no fear of me being raped. Now these two events that I've described brought home two things to me, which changed quite radically the way I practiced anthropology. Firstly, they showed me that feminism, and I regarded myself as a feminist, was in fact deeply Eurocentric in many of its assumptions, and this was a quite radical thought at the time. And this was a point that many anthropologists working in the gender field were just beginning to recognise around that time, and it forced me to question feminisms, feminism in ways that I'd never expected to have to do. Secondly, closely related to this first point, these two events showed me that even anthropologists, with all of our apparent sensitivity to racial denigration, nevertheless engage in it quite unthinkingly. Like my head of department, I had assumed that because rape, a practice which we view as shockingly barbaric, was found in my own society, then it must be found everywhere because we're the most civilised society there is, right? So if it's found in our society, then it's found everywhere. This forced me to confront the links between sexual othering and racial othering that many scholars, including both feminists and anthropologists, routinely overlooked at the time. Yeah.
is Professor Margaret Jolly. Margaret is a professor of anthropology at the Australian National University and a fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia. She was, uh, she was also an ARC laureate fellow from 2010 to 2016. She's an historical anthropologist who has written extensively on gender in the Pacific, on exploratory voyages and travel writing, missions and contemporary Christianity, maternity and sexuality, cinema and art. Her current ARC project examines climate change and the futures in Oceania. We look very much forward to hearing you. And thank you, Christine, for your fine stories. This is going to be fun. <laughs> thank you, Ben, and Chiori, and Carly. Uh, it's great. Uh, and can I apologise? I've been a total delinquent. I've really avoided the provocative question. And I've rather taken the question to talk about the ethnography of anthropology itself in Australia. Mm -hmm and its relationship to the public sphere. So this very short presentation, I'm going to call the F word. Anthropology, positionality, and intersecting lives in Oz. And I hope you'll indulge. I'm doing some rather rambling personal reflections, which given my age, I'm going to orchestrate chronologically from the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and even into the new millennium. Let's see how far I get in 10 minutes. Now, first of all, in the 1970s, I want to insist on the absolutely integral relationship between the second wave feminist movement in Sydney and the development of feminist anthropology at Sydney University and elsewhere. In that movement, there was a robust, sometimes quite violent conflict between the theoretical and political positions of radical feminists, liberal feminists, and socialist feminists. And I certainly put myself in that latter camp. I, I think uh, I remember very clearly not only being part of consciousness raising groups, but also part of a group called NAMFs, instead of NIMFs, NAMFs, the non-aligned Marxist feminists, including Cathy Robinson and, Dame and, and, and so Pringle, uh, Rosemary Pringle. Now, I think my stance is what we would now call intersectional feminism, that the multiple oppressions of gender, race and class, that holy trinity, intersect and interact. And I think there was a resounding resonance between the feminist movement and the challenges to patriarchal genealogies of disciplines at Sydney University in the early 1970s, the philosophy strike of 1973, the parallel anthropology struggle. And some of our most pressing debates in anthropology were focused on that quintessential practice of ethnography, with early reflections on androcentricity in fieldwork, remember that word, the male-centeredness of both male and female anthropologists. For me, the experience of embodied ethnography in Vanuatu from early 1970 was crucial. I was a young woman, just 21, from a working class family in Sydney. My mother had just died from breast cancer. This was my first trip overseas, apart from going on the Manly Ferry. My ultimate choice <laughs> to live with the custom people of Southeast Pentecost in the still colonised New Hebrides and Nouvelle Zebrid was no doubt moulded by an exoticism then pervading ethnography in the Western Pacific. Will it ever end, I ask? But it's also shaped by a certain romance of resistance, as Abu Lagod would express it. These folk were feisty, anti-colonial, and in that period, anti-Christian people. I was captivated. How they saw me was more important than how I saw them. There was an expressed tension articulated between uh, being an isosceliri, a floating one, a beautiful word, which actually also marks uh, floating of, of driftwood on a stream or a dance movement, and a Nisinad law, a woman of the place. Male dominance was being crucially repurposed in ideas, ideologies of custom, and I needed to learn top place, sa, 
given that men were actively inhibiting women from learning the lingua franca Brislamar. My adopted father, Watas, told me to stop teaching my sisters Chibuano and Chibaso while bathing in Tibiribiri Creek because learning Brislamar would make them mobile and sexually available to other men. For analysis and reflection, my book, Women of the Place, and probably too many articles. But my ethnographic experience, I want to insist, was not just confined to the rural, remote parts of Pentecost, but throughout the 1970s, before Vanuatu gained independence in 1980, I was having engaging conversations in Port Vila with women like Grace Mira Melissa from Ambi, a nationalist and a very strong advocate of women's rights. I published many papers about her politics and her poetry, and when she died unexpectedly early in 2001, I was teaching in the States, I published a poem in her memory called Simply Grace. But in that period, Grace was eschewing the F word. She was not a feminist. That word for her was inappropriate to her struggle. She strongly contrasted the individualism of women's lib in Australia with the distinctive collectivism of Pacific women's movements. When Father Waterlini came to power as inaugural Prime Minister of Vanuatu, she became his personal advisor. And from that position, initiated a 10-year moratorium on foreign researchers. Although this effectively terminated my ethnographic engagement with Pentecost for a decade, I supported this attempt to catalyse Indigenous research through the Vanuatu Cultural Centre's fieldworker program. And this Vanuatu experience was crucial to how I settled back into life in Sydney and life in anthropology at Sydney University. While I was still, I should say, a very long finishing PhD student, we were successful, Cathy and a number of us together, in getting the first feminist course established and I was in offered anthropology, in anthropology yeah, yeah. and I was offered a casual contract to teach it. My proposed title, Feminist Anthropology, was rejected by the then Professor of Anthropology, Peter Lawrence, again the F word, and I had to accept the anodyne title of Women in Anthropology. And despite the fact that I'd already composed a whole term, nine weeks of lectures and orchestrated a great link film program, Lawrence advised me that the late Les Hyatt would teach in the final three weeks. I was furious. The course went ahead, was immensely popular, but I refused to do it again on those conditions and decamped ultimately to the more welcoming, if brutalist, grounds of Macquarie University, <laughs> led by the charismatic Chandra J. Wardner. My supervisor, Michael Allen, inherited the course and continued to teach it for some years afterwards. The 1980s. In 1983, as a single mother, I was seconded for a year or so to participate in the foundational project, Gender Relations in the Southwest Pacific. In the then Research School of Pacific Studies, initiated by Roger Keesing and Michael Young, it brought together some very fine scholars from overseas and Australia together. Marilyn Strathern, Deborah Kavertz, Jimmy Weiner, now Jamie Pearl, Martha McIntyre, Christian Hellowell, myself. That project was immensely productive. I was not. The challenges of separation <laughs> from my daughter's biological father, being a single mother with an eight-month-old, and launching into a new love affair with Nick Thomas, I have to say, uh, were taking their toll. But that year laid firm foundations for my later intellectual life and writing, and the experience of feminine support and friendship was as crucial as the intellectual frisson. I still remember how Marilyn Strathern sometimes mowed my lawn, and how I looked after her kids for a while when she went to Berkeley to deliver the lectures that became the gender of the gift. And I remember Martha's wonderful meals, and I remember Christine giving me a, a hot toddy when I had a terrible cold like I've got today, so I'd sleep but not have to deal with my daughter. But we did not all agree. I have major problems with Marilyn's arguments in, in gender of the gift, and also with her dichotomous separation of anthropology versus feminism, detached, distanciated versus engaged familiar. 
I was far more sympathetic to the historical anthropology of my colleague and still dear friend Martha McIntyre and her staunch advocacy of the need to name and analyse inequality on the basis of gender, class and the racial legacies of colonialism. And I think, Martha, it was from that theoretical and political viewpoint that we collaborated to co-edit the book Family and Gender in the Pacific Domestic Contributions and the Colonial Impact. But again, there was a problem about naming. Although it was focused on the crucial importance of Christian conversion in reshaping domestic lives, Cambridge University Press, as you might remember, refused to let us call Bless This, ha Bless this House, because I think that was the name of a UK soapy at the time. So obviously it could not be contaminated by popular culture. I returned to the ANU again, initially on secondment from Macquarie to establish the Gender Relations Project in the now-called Research School of Pacific and Asian Studies, established for, with strategic funds from the Institute of Advanced Studies but responsible to the school director. It had a very ambiguous relation to the Department of Anthropology. But our mission was clear with another dear friend and close colleague, Colpin Aram, also from Macquarie. We were, I think, immensely productive and were soon declared a continuing centre, establishing annual themes for our work, hosting a series of great workshops and conferences, affiliating a series of talented early career scholars, Shelley Mallett, Andrew Whitaker, Lisa Law, supervising many students, and we produced a large volume of influential monographs and edited volumes. And although we aspired to be transdisciplinary and transregional, not so easy in the RSPARS environment in that period, we were, I think, more grounded in anthropology history and for you, Coppin, a philosophy, but sometimes caught in a fraught, if fertile, intersection. So I see that period as not just productive, but reproductive, in that the scholars who worked with us, women and men, went on to good careers in the academy, many of them, the public service, international organisations, all with a firm feminist sensibility. Finally, I'm going to fast forward to the new millennium and the establishment of the ANU Gender Institute in 2011. I have to confess I had the idea for it when I was on a lovely sabbatical leave in France in 2009 and very comfortably removed, on the Côte d'Azur, I should say, from the preoccupying politics of the collapse of the IAS faculty's distinction, a terrible distinction, a bleeding heart in the wound of the ANU, but the chaos created by the formation of new colleges. The news that it would be funded by Chancellery came in the same period as the award of my Australian Laureate Fellowship, and we had a still a, still a launch by the then GG Dame Quentin Bryce. The Gender Institute, if some of you don't know its work, has a dual mission connect, to connect the work on gender and sexuality at the ANU in our programs of research, education, outreach, and to promote gender equality and diversity and inclusion within the institution. Kim Rubenstein in law, Fiona Jenkins in philosophy were both stellar conveners. After my laureate finished in 2016, I assumed the leadership for three years until just um, a couple of months ago. The Institute, again, I think has been a very big success. We've just received the ANU Claire Burton Award. Yes. It's a beautiful uh, piece of purple glass from the ANU Art School. But it's actually presented certain challenges. I won't detail here, but we could talk about Yeah, One minute is just right. For me, this perforce moved my frame from feminist anthropology to a far more disciplinary, transdisciplinary feminist frame. Given that, and especially as revealed by the challenge of the SAGE process, we have witnessed very divergent patterns in disciplines how some disciplines have been far more hostile than others to the revolution of feminist thinking and practice. Anthropology, history, sociology and the Haas disciplines have been far more open than philosophy, political science, economics. The approach we've been taking in the Gender Institute is that gender inequality in universities is not just a question of numbers, but of knowledge. Targets are important, 
and we have to lament the woeful continuing numbers in areas of science, maths, physics, computing, being redressed by Eleanor Huntington, Steve Blackburn and Genevieve Bell's 3AI Institute. But why the differences from the biological sciences, where there are far more women, far more at senior levels, and where the feminist revolution has had an impact on the knowledge being created? Fundamentally, as I see it, universities are about creating and disseminating knowledge, and we have to offer far more nuanced accounts of the power involved in both protecting and subverting patriarchal interests in the academy. So in conclusion, I want to celebrate how far anthropology has moved and how far we have moved anthropology. From those days when Mari Ray, the only woman with tenure in the then Research School of Pacific Studies, was the victim of severe patriarchal constraints, actually articulated in Innocent in the Garden of Eden that you circulated to us, and the target of misogynist attacks, let's name it. Now she has a fine, light-filled and welcoming building named after her, just across the road from Cambry. And I think this is not just symbolic. Let us celebrate how feminism can transform our scholarship as well as our lives and how feminism needs to be both inclusive and intersectional. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you so much for your very inspiring talk. Um, our third speaker is Martha McIntyre. Martha is a professor of anthropology at University of Melbourne and a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia. Martha has undertaken research in Papua New Guinea, addressing questions about matrilineal kinship and exchange through an innovative historical lens. Her research has focused particularly on the lives of women, the quality of which she has also improved uh, in practical ways through work as a policy advisor and consultant to the PNG government and Asian aid agencies and corporations. We look forward to hearing from you, Martha. Right. <clears throat> I have a very sore throat, so I hope my voice doesn't give out. I've chosen to present four statements made to me by senior anthropologists that seem to me to highlight ideas about the relationship between feminism and anthropology in the 1980s particularly. I was a historian before I was an anthropologist, so my career really began in the late 1970s as an anthropologist. So a very small bit of background, mainly to stress my commitment to feminism before I even thought about anthropology. I'd been involved in the feminist movement for several years, first in Melbourne and then when I went to Cambridge in England. I'd been in a consciousness-raising group that was transformative, not only for me, but for all the other women in it. At that time, I was a secondary school teacher who, like all female teachers, had been forced to resign when I was married and become casually employed. I actively campaigned against this regulation, which in 1969 applied to all female uh, government employment employees. And I think the transformation for me was one evening we went around this group, each one saying what, what they would really like to be doing with their lives. Helen Garner, who was in the group, said she wanted to become a writer. We all encouraged her and said, Oh, you write one wonderful letters. You could be a writer. 
Um, Winston McCackie said she wanted to stand for the local council and campaign for childcare. And we said, oh, of course you could do that. She later became Lord Mayor of Melbourne. Jill McMillan said she wanted to do a postgraduate degree in psychology because she was sick of the philosophy department where she was studying. We said, oh, yes, you can do that. <laughs> and I said, I wanted to stop teaching and return to undertake the final year of my honours degree in history and literature. And everyone supported the move, so I did. Those, I think, were the heady years of women's liberation and everything seemed possible. Sisterhood was powerful. I went to Cambridge intending to pursue a study in history of philosophy of science and for various reasons this plan was abandoned. So let me leap ahead. I completed my anthropological studies there, applied and gained a PhD scholarship at ANU. My study was of the small island of Tubitubi in the Kula Ring. I proposed to examine the ways colonization and conversion to Christianity had transformed the Kula. My argument being that what Paul Nofsky observed in 1919 in particular, I've concentrated on the economic changes that occurred from the 19th century and their effects on labour, the gendered nature of labour, the inter-island networks of exchange. It was an historical ethnography firmly <coughs> located within economic anthropology. I was unabashedly Marxist in my conviction that any good anthropological study must be grounded in the material conditions of people's lives. It was also very feminist in that I tried extremely hard to constantly look at what was happening to women's lives, what was happening to men's. <coughs> in conversation with one of the professors, the same professor who uh, stimulated <laughs> Christine's observations. Uh, when, I, when I told him of my experience, he asked me about teaching women's studies at Cambridge, which I had done. He remarked, well, that was very astute of you to choose a PhD topic that has nothing to do with women. Much better at this stage to prove yourself in a more serious theoretical field. <laughs> when I completed my thesis... Roger Keesing, who's one of my supervisors, called me into his office and told me, your thesis is groundbreaking, but I've discussed this with others in the school, and we have decided that it is too historical to be examined exclusively by anthropologists. You have four chapters that are devoted to the effects of colonization and conversion of Christianity. One of your examiners will have to be a historian. Donald Denoon, then Professor of History at, at UPNG, was that examiner. In the thesis, as a feminist, I had deliberately tried to present a gendered perspective of social and economic life, past and present. How odd that it was not deemed necessary to have an examiner whose expertise was in the field of gender. Mm. 
1983, I gained a postdoctoral fellowship in the project Margaret mentioned, Gender Relations in Melanesia at ANU. <coughs> Marilyn Stratton came as the senior fellow in that project. She had supervised my studies at Cambridge and was a very good friend, but we had differences of opinion on many subjects related to women. First, she did not consider herself a feminist. Second, she did not think that gender inequality was an issue in Melanesia. She once remarked to one of my very close friends, and I checked on this quote, you can't be both an activist and an anthropologist. Why? Being a feminist activist means you can't properly pose the question to yourself, what is a woman? I wonder if she would maintain that now, but uh, I think that's a very interesting issue that she raises. My final ex example is a statement that came from my supervisor, Michael Young. I'd written a chapter for a collection on gender and fieldwork, edited by Diane Bell. I gave it to him for comment. He was full of praise but for one section in which I described my response to the death in childbirth of a tuba-tuba woman, Dinah. I'd been devastated by her death. She was really my closest friend, a brilliant, imaginative woman. She was my own age and, like me, had two children. I had found that section very hard to write, but as a feminist I was committed to reflexivity and felt that it spoke of the differences in our lives that had to be acknowledged in an ethnography. I loved her. I cried as I wrote it. Michael dismissed this as purple prose and says I said I should delete it. I kept it in. So in 1980s, being a feminist anthropologist had its problems. Writing about women was viewed as situating oneself in a marginal field. Writing about the effects of col colonialism and missionization was not even considered anthropology. One of the most committed anthropologists of gender could not see that being a feminist and an activist might mean that you constantly pose the question, what is a woman? And finally, including emotional descriptions based on affection, respect, and identification as a woman was an unforgivable lapse in scholarly prose style. <laughs>